me read the passage for you in John chapter 12, and we're going to find ourselves in verses 20 through 26. You follow along. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, and these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let me pray and then we'll look into the scripture. Father, we're so grateful for the text of the word of God. So grateful for the truthfulness of the word of God. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Father, may your spirit direct this passage for your kingdom, for your glory, that your saints might be built up, that those without a saving relationship with you would see the beauty of Christ's death. Lord, we love you. We give thanks in your name. Amen. It was many years ago, actually 1965, that the Beatles released an album. I know most of you won't look back that far. It was called Rubber Soul. And one of the songs on that album was a song by the name of Nowhere Man. And here was one of the stanzas. He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all of his nowhere plans for nobody. He doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to. And then it said, isn't he a bit like you and me. But the truth is, is when you're in Christ Jesus, we do have a point of view, and we do know where we're going to. As I went to that funeral yesterday, the memorial service, I was reminded of the great hope of the Lord Jesus Christ and of a life well spent. We do know where we are going to if you're placing your trust and hope in the scripture. And certainly the Lord Jesus Christ knew exactly what he was doing in the last days of his life during the Passion Week. I've titled this message, The Blessing blessing of Seeing and Following Jesus. And that's my prayer, that you would both see and that you would follow the Lord Jesus Christ. As we dive into the text, just right off the bat here, We start at verse 20, but really we need to back up. You remember last week was the triumphal entry. It says in 12.12, the next day, it says a large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And so they went out to meet him. They were in Jerusalem. They're on their way to Bethany. He's coming up from Bethany. They meet him and there's an antiphonal antiphonal chorus of praise coming both from Bethany and down from Jerusalem. And they're crying out in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And he fulfilled scripture when he found a donkey and sat on it and so forth. The disciples in verse 16 didn't understand. And they go out, but they meet him and they cry out. Now we know that those who cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who presumably shouted that probably on Sunday, would then be crying out for his crucifixion on Friday. But the key as we come into our text is in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. In other words, we're getting nowhere. And then they say, look, the world has gone after him. Obviously speaking in hyperbole, speaking of that known world in which they lived, that the whole world is going after him, the person of Christ. Now as you come to verse 20, 
it says, Now among those who went to worship at the feast, here's the key phrase, were some Greeks. And the Greeks represent, do they not, the whole world. Now, if you're reading in your ESV, it simply says there that there were some Greeks there. The Greek word is Hellenus, and it doesn't necessarily mean that these people are Greek and that they're all from Greece. What that text means and what that word means, that there were some Greeks, is that these are Gentiles. Gentiles is what the phrase means from any parts of the Greek-speaking world. In fact, it's interesting that the city of Decapolis was not far from Jerusalem. And in Decapolis, there were many Greeks, or I could say many Gentiles that lived there. So when you see that term, some Greeks, it's an umbrella term for Gentiles. Maybe I could say it this way. It's an umbrella term a term for non-Jewish people. Now, likely these Greeks who were coming into the Passover were what the New Testament calls God-fearing Gentiles. They had come up to Jerusalem for the Passover and worshipped with the Jewish people. Now, obviously, they were somewhat limited to worship with the Jewish people, but they were pilgrims that would come up from the Passover. In fact, look at chapter 11, verse 55. It says there that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So Passover was here. It was a great scene. It was teeming population of people. If Josephus was right, he would say that at some Passover seasons, there were 256,000 lambs that were sacrificed. He would say in another piece of his writing after this apparent time that the city of Jerusalem would swell to 2.5 million people. He said that was specifically only the Jews. But we also know that as they came into Passover, the Jewish people had proselytes. They had sometimes what Bible scholars would call converts. In fact, look over at chapter 12 in verse 12. It says there in the triumphal entry, the next day the large crowd had come to the feast because they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they come, and they came into Jerusalem. They were probably milling around the temple. We know that there was a court of the Gentiles that Gentile people could be, but of course they couldn't go into the inner courts of the Jewish people of that part of the temple. In fact, it says in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 that there was a dividing wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jewish courts. And so these Greeks come, you can see it, to the feast. Look at verse 21. It says, these came, these Greeks, to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And he asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. They come with this request. We want to see Jesus. We want to see him. And I, they're not just talking about seeing him physically out of curiosity. This has become somewhat of a famous phrase that is sometimes inscripted either on the back wall of a worship service, uh, of, of a building, or even sometimes right on the pulpit itself. We want to see Jesus. They're inquiring of Philip. They're inquiring of Andrew. Now you say, why are they inquiring to see Jesus? We really don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us why. But we just know that these Greeks came and they want to see Jesus. Could it have been the buzz that the Lord Jesus Christ was back now in Jerusalem? According to chapter 12, 12, it certainly could have been. Did these Greeks come up to Passover to worship because they had heard that Lazarus was raised from the dead just in the previous chapter? Sure, certainly could have been. I think it's interesting in Mark chapter 11 of the parallel passage of this account. In chapter 11 verse 15, during the Passion Week, Jesus drove out the money changers. You remember that. He declared the temple 
Do you remember this? Was to be a house of prayer for all, what? Nations. That happened at Passion Week. And so maybe as our Lord Jesus Christ was quoting Isaiah 56, 7, that the temple was not to be a place of merchandise, but to be a place of prayer for all nations, possibly some of these Greeks, possibly some of these God-fearing Gentiles thought that it would include them, thought that it would include non-Jewish people. It would include Greeks. It would include the Gentile world. Now you ask, why did they single out Philip? We don't know. Why did they single out Why did he, Philip, go and consult with Andrew? We don't know. But it is, I don't think, a mere coincidence that among the 12, only these two disciples had Greek names. Those are Greek names. They're Jewish, but they had Greek names. So possibly they knew them. Those two, of course, were in the fishing industry, and maybe they knew them. And so they don't come to Jesus Christ first. They come to Philip and Andrew. They come to the disciples, the only two, with Greek names. It's also interesting that Philip was a town from, called Bethsaida, which was near Galilee, which in that town there were many Greeks, there were many Gentiles that lived there. It's highly likely that Philip himself spoke Greek. Now again, they come to these two and they didn't go first to our Lord. You say, well, Scott, why is that? Well, we're, we're not sure. Maybe they just wanted to get on the inside. Maybe they had heard of all the accounts. I mean, really, Grace Church of the Valley, he's got power over nature. He's got power over demons. He's got power over disease. He has power over death. I think they want an up-close look. And maybe they came, maybe they knew Philip, maybe they knew Andrew, maybe they knew that they had Greek names, maybe that he, they spoke Greek, but they don't go to Jesus first. And I think it's somewhat realistic that they did it. Do you remember over in Matthew's gospel in chapter 10 in verse 5, when Jesus initially sent out the disciples, he sent them out and he said, go nowhere among the Gentiles. And he told him to enter no town of the Samaritans, but he told him in Matthew 10, 6, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of what? Israel. And so there was a priority of the gospel, at least at the beginning, to not go to the Gentiles, to not go to the Samaritans. But I want you, as you 12 are sent out, to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So it's possible. Now, certainly our Lord gave gospel opportunities to the whole world. John 3, 16, we understand that. He healed the centurion servant. We understand that. But maybe they were confused. Maybe they didn't want to go to Christ. Maybe they want to come to the people who, in their minds, are handling Christ. Now, the text says here that they want to see Jesus. Now, I don't want you to make too much of that. It's become a famous quote. I think that's fair if pastors need to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ or if we need to allow people to see Christ through us. But really what the term means, and it's used in the book of Acts, is they want to interview him. They want to interview him. They want to know more of what they have heard. That's the thought. They wanted to know, I believe, more of the salvation that he spoke of, the eternal life that he offered The tense of the verb is continuous. And so what I want you to understand, as these Greeks come to Jesus, they kept asking. They kept asking. They kept asking. So the Bible says that Philip uh, went and he told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Say, why is that? Well, we don't know, but there's three places that Andrew is seen in the Gospel of John. And every time he is seen, he is bringing people to Jesus Christ. Maybe Philip just wanted a partner with him in the Gospel. And so he went and told Andrew, and they both went and told Jesus. But you remember, Andrew was the one who brought his brother Peter to the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 1, verse 45. We meet Andrew. He brings his brother Peter. Then you remember Andrew was also mentioned in John chapter 6 where he brought the boy with the fish and the loaves to Christ. Now they're bringing these Greeks presumably to Jesus Christ. Three separate times he's always introducing people, people to Jesus Christ. 
So the Greeks and their inquiry, here's what's key, triggers an amazing, really amazing sequence in our Lord's ministry and our Lord's life. You say, well, what did it trigger? Well, it's, look at it in verse 23. It's somewhat amazing because you think Jesus answered them. Here's how he responded. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, we don't even know if he really answered the Greeks. It's kind of typical. We call it Johann uh, principle. He sometimes introduces you to situations and you don't know quite what happened. Now, Now look back at the text. I'll show you the text. It says Jesus, in verse 23, answered them. Now, who is the them? Is it just Philip and Andrew? Possibly. Does it include also the Greeks that wanted to see Jesus? I think so, but but don't quite know. But here's what you want to see in the text. It's a trigger for a significant turning point in the Lord's ministry. And so as we walk through this text, I want you to see two exchanges. We'll just put it at that. Two exchanges that reveal his death on our behalf and our reward for following him. Two different strategic exchanges that reveal his death on our behalf and our reward for following him. First, let me take you just back to the strategic turning point. All I know is the Greeks want to see him, and he says now, here's the strategic turning point, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's like the divine alarm clock went off. It's now here. It's here because of the Greeks' inquiry. Maybe it just was the time. Maybe it just was the season. But this alarm, this divine alarm clock goes off. The hour, verse 23, has come. Now you say, what hour? What hour? Well, it's the hour, I'll show you, of his death. It's the hour of his resurrection. It's the hour of his exaltation, if you will, and even his glorification. What's fascinating in John's gospel is up until this time, the hour was always future. In fact, let me just show you. Go back to John chapter 2 for a moment. Take that Bible and look back to John chapter 2. Show you a few of these places where this is mentioned. You remember there in his first miracle at the wedding at Cana. He performed that miracle. They told him that they have no wine. And here's Jesus' response in 2.4. Women or woman, what does this have to do with me? Here's the phrase, my hour has not yet come. In other words, he knew at that point, even at the beginning of his ministry, that his hour has not come. Would you look over to John chapter 7 just for a moment? In John chapter 7, in verse 6, it's stated just a little bit different, but similar. We're at the Feast of Booths. He says in 7, 6, he said to them, my time... Has not yet come, but your time is always here. In other words, the time that I would be lifted up on the cross. Look down at chapter 7, verse 8. He said, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. He's referring to that hour, beloved. Look in your Bible in chapter 7, in verse 30. They were seeking to arrest him. I like this phrase. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In other words, that hour where he would die, that hour of his resurrection, that hour of his glorification, they sought to kill him, but the hour had not come. Look over at chapter 8. There where he said, I am the light of the world. And he said these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him. And here's why. Because his hour had not yet come. He was in perfect control. 
For he knew his hour. That hour was appointed unto him. It was the hour of his death. And until that time, it would, he would not be delivered over. In fact, I purposely think this. We'll get there. He purposely was delaying this time so that at the very moment, at the very minute, on Good Friday, when those animals were being sacrificed, the greatest sacrifice would be made for the world. The Lord Jesus Christ would go to his cross. And so here's the hour of what he's talking about. So before, the hour has not yet come, but would you go back to John 12 now? Now the hour has come. You can see that there in 23. The hour has come. In fact, look down at verse 27. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. He says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And that hour is now. Look over just at the next chapter in 13.1. So clear. Before the feast of the Passover, 13.1. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Here it is. To depart out of this world to the Father. And so this hour had come. It's the hour as you look back in John chapter 12 for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now I wasn't there, but we're reading the Word of God here. When he said for the Son of Man to be glorified, I'm I'm just wondering if they gasped when he said that. He uses that phrase, the Son of Man. And that phrase, the Son of Man, as we've looked at before, was used in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, in that vision of the Ancient of Days, where God the Father gave to the Son of Man a kingdom. And I'm just wondering if when the Jews heard that, they thought, this is the time. This is the time where he will take over. This is the hour that the Son of Man must be glorified. Here, that word glory, where it says glorified, just means to be revealed. God is going to reveal how glorious the Son of Man truly is, except we know, as his readers, that he would be glorified by his death. In other words, his death, as we just read, would be the revealing of his glory. So, beloved, the hour is his death, resurrection, exaltation. Let me just say this. His example doesn't save you. It's his death that saves you. His teaching, as glorious as it was, doesn't save you. His teaching enables us to know how to live and understand who he's, what he's taught, but we're only saved through faith in his work on the cross for us. Beloved, our Lord was destined for this hour. Come back on Friday night as we celebrate the Lord's table. In fact, not only is your destiny committed to this hour, but the destiny of the whole world hinges on this hour. So at some point, the Greeks inquire of him, we want to see Jesus, and it is a strategic turning point. But it leads to the second exchange, and the second exchange is to the strategic teaching point. The strategic teaching point. Look what he says, and he says this for emphasis here. Truly, verse 24, truly, truly, or amen and amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruits. And so there's three features to this strategic teaching point. Number one, or letter A, he provides a parable. He provides a parable. He's talking to the people in an agricultural world, much as ours is. And he provides a parable, and the parable is this, that life comes through death. He talks about a grain of wheat, and a grain of wheat comes from a head of wheat. And what happens is a grain of wheat needs to die. It needs to dry up, if you will. It needs to lose its moisture. 
You might say before it falls to the ground, that grain of wheat is dormant or not living would be a better description of a grain of wheat. The biblical description is actually better. It talks about the natural process of the falling grain of wheat into the ground to finish up the drying, to finish up the dying or death part of the process. In other words, death is necessary for the harvest. Some would say that as that grain of wheat goes into the ground, there's a little bit of a hard shell around that, that when it goes into the ground, it decomposes, it actually dies, but in its death, it brings forth new life. So here's his teaching point. Here's the parable. The grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies in order to bring out a harvest. We get that. So too, the death of the son will result in the salvation of many. That's the parable. The grain of wheat must be buried for the seed, if you will, to die, to yield fruit for the farmer. So too, the son of man must die if he is to produce a spiritual harvest. And that harvest would be people. That harvest would be the fruit of evangelism. In other words, Grace Church of the Valley, if the seed is not sown, the Bible says that it remains alone. It produces no fruit. In other words, if Jesus does not die, he bears no fruit. There's no souls that are saved. So I think here's one of the principles here is this, that the Greeks come. They want to see Jesus. The Gentiles come. They want to see him, but he first must die on the cross. If they want to see him, they must see him through the avenue of his death. Look down in your Bible in 1232. Jesus clearly states there, and I, when I am lifted up on the earth, will draw all people to myself. I love that phrase. When he is lifted up, In other words, when he is lifted up on the cross, he is going to draw, the thought is, all kinds of people to himself. In fact, those all kinds of people include the Greeks. It includes you if you're non-Jewish this morning. I mean, it's just that simple. If you're here and you're not Jewish, then you're of the Gentile-speaking world, and that includes you. So he says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You remember earlier in John chapter 10, he said, I have other sheep who are part of my sheepfold. In other words, he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but he has other sheep that he needed to bring into a sheepfold, John 10, 16. But first, there's the principle. He must die. He must complete his mission by dying. Looking back, I'm thinking of John 3, 14. Remember when it says, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. In other words, lifted up on a cross to die for your sin. And that great Passage in Isaiah fifty two thirteen. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. The thought is high, lifted up, and glorified. So it is at the cross, beloved, that the heart of God is revealed. It is at the cross that the Son would be glorified. And the parable reveals that he must die. In other words, the harvest is only going to be reaped when he sacrifices his life and puts away sin by the sacrifice of himself in his death. In other words, when he went to the cross, he would atone for the sins of the world. Beloved, he had to die. He had to die. And so maybe when they gasped, hey, now is the hour when the son will be glorified, He actually says, oh no, this grain of wheat needs to fall to the ground and die, and then it will yield its fruit. He's saying of himself that I must go to my death, the reason that the Father sent me, and provide the way of salvation for the world. There is no other way. He is not just the Savior of the Jews. He is the Savior of the Greek and Gentile-speaking world. So number one, he provides a parable. Secondly, can we say it this way? He delivers his point. He delivers his point. 
a wonderful statement here. You've seen statements like this in the gospel. Look at 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, this is stated all over. He's going to deliver his point to you, okay? This is stated in Matthew 10 somewhat, Matthew 16, Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 14. What is our Lord getting at here? What is he saying? Look at it again in 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And I think I used to, when I was a younger Bible teacher, to see this evangelistically. That this would be the point in the sermon that I'm to come after you evangelistically. That you're to give your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there may be truth in that. But I really actually, as I've studied this more and more, I think there's a great encouragement here. I think at the end of the phrase, look at it again in verse 25. If you hate this life in this world, you will keep it for eternal life. I think he's trying to encourage these disciples. I think he's come to the hour of his death. He will die, but he will be raised on that glorious third day. He will be exalted into the presence of his Father. And for those of you who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you will keep it, as it says there, for eternal life. The reason I say that is these disciples have already confessed Christ. He is not telling them how to be saved. He's telling them how not to waste their lives. Jesus is saying, I must die and so must you. And as you die, you will understand the fruit that you will bear as well. In fact, look over just in your Bible to Mark chapter 10 just for a moment. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Do you remember when Peter said this to our Lord and it's an interesting passage. He, he was saying that, to, he was in the context of the rich young ruler who can be saved. And the rich young ruler, remember, he didn't give up all of his possessions and go away. And he went away uh, very, very sad. Jesus said in Mark 10, 25, it's easier to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and said, then who can be saved? And, and Peter said this in 1028. He said, see, we've left everything and followed you. In other words, we're not like that guy. We're not like that rich young ruler. We've come to you, the living water. We've come to you, the living bread. We've left our nets. We've left our fishing business We've left our own fame. We're following you. We're following the master. He said, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, look, in 1029, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, what? Eternal life. In other words, you're going to receive both family and blessing and honor both now, but in the age to come, you will also receive eternal life. So Peter said, we've left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? And here's the answer. Here's what you get. You get eternal life. Now look back at John chapter 12. Look back there. Let me take you into that phrase in John 12 verse 25. And I want you to notice a couple of features there as you look back at John 12. And remember, it was like this Greek inquiry to see Jesus launch this. But do you see this? Whoever loses his life, or loves his life, loses it. And then this, verse 25, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. He's opening the expanse of the gospel. It is not just for the Jews only. It's for whoever. Whoever's here this morning. Look at verse 26. It's the same thing in another way. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
Look, at the end of verse 26, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So you got whoever loves or whoever hates, and you got if anyone, if anyone. And so here, he's coming to this point now, and he's going to deal with this scripture. Look what he says in verse 25. He said, whoever loves his life. So what does that mean? Well, it just means whoever loves himself. Obviously, it's cast negatively. In fact, the Greek word is interesting. There's two different words here for life. One of them is suke, and one of them is zoe. But first here, he says, whoever loves himself, whoever loves his own ego, whoever loves self, whoever in this life wants independence from God, If you're about this life, if you're about your passions, if you're about your treasures, if you're about your kingdom, if you're living only for this world, only in this world, only with the people you want to live it, and you want nothing to do with Christ, look what he says in verse 25. He said, whoever loves his life, what does it say? Loses it. You lose it in the life to come eternally. It's better to understand that phrase there, loses it, to destroy it. Here's the paradox that Christ is offering in his teaching. The people who want to love their life here will actually destroy their life in the kingdom to come, is the thought. But look again at verse 25. Whoever hates his life, and the idea hates there is to, is to love less is what it means. In other words, You hate this life. In other words, that's equated with all those other passages of denying yourself, of taking up your cross, of following the Lord Jesus Christ. That just as that grain of wheat fell into the ground and died and came up out of it producing souls for his kingdom, so too the believer now in this strategic teaching point needs to die to himself and die to his pleasures. He needs to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And and when you do that, look at it in verse 25, you will keep it or save it for eternal life. And he's talking about divine life here. That's that Greek term zoe. He's talking about real abundant life. He's saying the only way that you're going to get abundant life now is when you lose your life and invest your life into the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Listen, you remember this in Mark 8, beloved. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his what? Soul. I mean, what do you really gain? You profit, it says there that you profit a man to gain the entire world but he forfeits his own soul. What do you really get in that? First Peter, it talks about your inheritance when it says about our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. You say, well, Scott, what's he doing right here? Well, listen, he doesn't have to reason with us, but he does. He's actually pleading with us. And he's driving his point home that just as his death brings forth fruit, so too we lose our life in this world, hate this world, and we save our life eternally. That's his point. So he provides a parable. Secondly, he delivers the point. And thirdly, let me say it this way, he gives a promise. He gives a promise. Look at it in the text in verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, it says there, the Father will honor him. Now again, I note for you, he doesn't just say whoever in verse 25, but twice again in 26, if anyone, if anyone, it could be you here this morning. Now, what does life come down to? (laughs) What does your life come down to? What does my life come down to? And the answer that the Lord Jesus would give us here, it comes down to this. And I'm speaking to you personally. Following the Lord. Following the Lord. In other words, does it come down to witnessing? No. 
Does it come down to praying? No. Does it come down to teaching? No. Does it come down to singing? No. Does it come down to preaching? No. Does it come down to giving? No. Does it come down to working? No. It comes down to this this morning for you. To follow him. To follow him. Because all of those things that I just mentioned are beautiful, but they flow out of following him. So it's not following the church. No, it's following him. In other words, it's very simple, isn't it? Following him. And when you begin to ask the question, what kind of path did he take? He fell into the ground and died. That was the path. He fell into the the ground and died. In other words, what God the Father wished him to do was his determining principle. And I would declare to you that the determining principle of your fruitfulness as a Christian and your ultimate happiness as a Christian will be to the extent of which you follow him, and in this case, even follow him unto death. In other words, Jesus is saying death to your pleasure, death to your ambitions, death to your goals, those things that are peculiarly yours, Lewis Johnson said, in which you put other things before the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen, I, you know, I'm thrilled that we're in this brand new building. I'm, I'm thrilled. But the, the, the most basic thing is for you to follow him. And everything else you do in your life flows from that. But if you're not following him, then everything else will be wrong. And I, and I just, I love that quote. I think I've read it before when somebody asked the secret to George Mueller's service, you know, the guy that was used in amazing ways back in the previous century to house all those orphans in Europe. And he did it all without asking for a dime and God greatly blessed his work. And if you've ever not read that biography, I would encourage you to do so. It was one of the greatest books that I've ever read on the man of God. They would be sitting at the breakfast table without food on the table for what was a small army of, I think it was 50 kids that were in that orphanage only to be in prayer that God will provide. And sure enough, Uh, the door opened and it was the baker and the milkman and said, we just thought you should have this. And that's one of the stories that just comes to my mind and his whole life was that way. And they asked him the secret of a service and he said, there was a day when I died. He said, utterly died. And as he began to speak this, it says in his biography that he bent lower and lower until he touched the floor. In other words, as he's speaking this, he said, I died and I utterly died. And then as he got lower and lower to the floor, he went on to say that I died to George Mueller. His opinions, his preferences, his taste, his will. And then as he got lower and lower, he said, I died to the world. I died to its approval or blame, even of my friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. That was the secret of his service. I would say it would be the secret of our service. And I really think he's appealing to us as a believer. Because you know what's interesting is that John here doesn't emphasize how difficult the life of following Jesus will be. He actually says how rewarding the life of following Jesus is. Now certainly to follow him could be to follow him in his suffering could be to follow him unto death, and certainly that's in that text. But there's more there. There's a reward. In fact, it's interesting that C.S. Lewis said that the New Testament has lots to say, he said, about self-denial. But he went on to say not about self-denial as an end in itself. Lewis said that nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so he said, contains an appeal to desire. To desire. Now now look at the text again. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And then you're, you're left with, is this God's grace or is this commitment? And beloved, I really believe that what he's describing here in these two verses 
is the obedience that flows from our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's because you love him that you want to serve him. It's because you want to honor him that you want to follow him. The reason I say it's out of a relationship is you'll notice the words here, he who serves me is the thought. He who follows me. And in a, in a parallel passage in Mark thirty eight thirty four, Jesus said, he who comes after me. He says in 835 or 36, he who follows me. He says, he who does that for my sake. And then he does it in a negative way. If you deny him, you'll be ashamed of me and my words. Beloved, I really feel this, that following Christ is not out of an act of desperation. It's out of a heart of devotion that loves the Savior. So that our obedience is a response to his grace. It is not a payment for what he has done for us. Now look specifically, the Lord delineates two promises here. And and this is a, a wonderful, wonderful promise. It's almost too good to be true, almost too good, but look at it. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now look at this promise, that where I am, there will my servants be also. Here's the first promise, is you get to be with Jesus. You get to be with Jesus. Maybe I could say it this way. You get to be with Jesus in heaven. Let me say it this way. If you identify, or in this case, if you see our Lord's death, if you place your trust in him, you will live with him forever in his glory in heaven. That's what the Bible says. This is what Jesus said right here. If you serve me, you follow me, then you'll be where I am in the glory of heaven. Do you remember that passage in John 14, 3, where he said, I go and prepare a place for you? He said, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, what? You may be also. So here's the amazing thing. He's giving you a promise. He's saying, follow me. He's saying, serve me, and the ones who follow me and serve me out of devotion, not out of a spirit of duty, I'm going to take you with me into the glory of heaven. In fact, look over at John 17 just for a moment. In John 17, in verse 24, he says there in that great high priestly prayer, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see the glory that you have given me. He's going to take us right into the throne room of God. In fact, there's other passages. When it speaks of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And it says there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, so we will always be with the Lord. Listen, this life is not the end. Maybe it was Jim Elliott who really got that right, that he is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot, what, lose. We will always be together with the Lord. So here was Joel Brandon yesterday, at least at his memorial service, passing away some days before that, but to close his eyes in this life and to awake in glory. So listen, as you come to Christ, as you see his death on your behalf, as you walk in obedience to him out of the fruit that grows out of that commitment to him, you will always be with the Lord. Certainly you remember as we celebrate the crucifixion this Friday that there were three people on that cross, the Lord Jesus Christ in the middle and the two thieves on the side. And the two thieves, at least according to the Gospels, were both hurling abuse at one point on the cross to Christ. But remember, the thief looked over to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, remember me. And remember what Jesus said in Luke 23. He said, today you will be, he said, what? With me in what? Paradise. 
This is the great promise. So listen, I just want to reason with you. Jesus wants to reason with you. You would be an utter fool to live in your passion. You would be an utter fool to live for your pleasure. You would be an utter fool to live for this life. The Lord Jesus Christ isn't just the Savior for the Jews. He's the Savior for the Gentiles. He's the Savior for the Greek-speaking world. And he came down to die that whoever, he says, puts their trust, whoever sees my death in that light, whoever follows me and serves me will be where I am. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 eight, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body. And he said to be at home with the Lord. We're at home with the Lord. In other words, you have such a precious promise that if you die in this life, you will go to be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. In fact, look back at John 12. That's exactly what he says there. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also in the glory of heaven. And so here's the first promise. You get to be with Jesus. But there's a second promise, a final one. Look at it. It's, it's almost, it, it's, you, you have to almost see it with your eyes. Look at it. If anyone serves me, the Father will, what? honor him. It, it's, it's almost hard to say because we sang the song earlier, not in me. And it is nothing in us. You know, you come to the cross empty. You come to the cross brokenhearted. You have nothing to offer the Lord Jesus Christ. You have nothing to bring him. You have nothing to get into his presence. When he declares you righteous, he justifies you. He makes you like his son. But here, you, you gain heaven. But look at it. I mean, underline this thing. If anyone serves me, Jesus said, the Father will honor him. Now listen, this is amazing because nowhere in John's gospel does it speak of the Father honoring someone. However, in John's gospel, we read of the honor that people either pay to Christ or the honor that they pay to the Father, John chapter 5, John chapter 8. But incredibly here, the honor that the Father shows to the believer is the, is the reward of faithful service to Jesus, is the thoughts, okay? The honor we receive from the Father comes from our union with Christ, the one whom the Father honors. And so, beloved, the Bible is declaring, if you honor the Son, look at it, the Father will honor him. Jesus said this in Revelation 3.21. He said, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. In other words, part of that joy that he experiences as the Son of God will also be the joy that we have by our union to Christ back to the Father. Jesus said in John 17, that the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. I mean, here's the principle. If you put Jesus first, just as you come to Christ and you honor him, and you serve him, and you follow him, and you love him, then the Bible says that God the Father is going to honor you. Now certainly I'm not going to look for that, and certainly not, you're not going to look for that, but that's what the Bible says. The Father's going to honor those who are truly his. Spurgeon imagines a case in which a prince, imagine this story, a prince and a prince's servant fell into the hands of bandits who held the prince for a ransom. And the negotiations for the ransom are delayed. And during the interval, life goes badly for the one who is of noble blood and, of course, also for the servant. The prince falls sick. The servant tends him. The servant wipes his master's fevered brow and gives him a cool water to drink. 
there is a point in their captivity when the servant who is well finds an opportunity to escape, but he declines, preferring to remain with his Lord. Finally, they are discovered, and both the prince and his companion are rescued. Spurgeon asks this, who is the man whom the king delights to honor? He said, clearly the servant. For the king says, this is the man who was with my son in the prison, who cared for him, who attended him, who nursed him when he was near death. He shall therefore, or therefore be with my son in honor, even above of the greatest statesmen of the realm. Spurgeon went on to say in the same way, Jesus tells us that God will honor those who follow him in this life. And sometimes it involves suffering. Sometimes it involves death for his sake. It always involves a life of self-denial. But Christ says it will be followed by honor and self-denial will be followed by praise. And only the way that Spurgeon can say, he said, can we not hear it? He said, I think I hear the king's voice. Stand back, you angels. Make room, seraphim, for here comes the man. Here comes the woman who was with my son. He was only a sinful, poor man. He, is born, he was born in an ungodly time in the midst of an ungodly people, but he was with my son. He was like him. He stood by him. Now I will honor him. Come up here, take his crown, and then sit there with my son on his throne and reign with him. For you shall indeed be with my son in his glory, even as you were with him in his shame. Listen, this is a wonderful promise. You are going to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And in some way, the Father is going to honor you as you give allegiance to the Son. So here's the blessing of seeing him. The blessing of seeing him in his death. And here is the reward of following him. So here's the promise. Whoever loves him, whoever serves him, that may be you this morning. You have the opportunity to be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. You have the opportunity to be honored by the Father. The Father will honor him. You know, I was out with my wife last week or so and we came upon a man who we had the opportunity to share the gospel with. I'll keep the details brief. And we told him that he had the wonderful opportunity to be in heaven. And he, and he told us, he said, oh, I'll eventually get there. He said, but I'll have to do 10,000 years in purgatory first. No smile. And I could see the pain in the statement. He met everything he said. He must have done some things that would make him think that he's got a long time. But the point remains, we're saved by his grace. And those who honor the Father and honor the Son, and follow the Son, and serve the Son, will be honored by the Father, and it will be all God's grace to us. So listen, have you trusted in the Savior of the world? You say, well, Scott, he's the Savior, but he's not my Savior. Why? He said, Pastor, I, I've done so much. You have no idea what my life has been like. You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea of what I've lived through. You have no idea of how much I spurned him, and now you're putting him out to be the Savior. He is the Savior. But what, what you must do is come to the person of Christ. You must see that he died for your sin on that cross. He died in the midst of those two thieves so that you could go free. I think he was saying to the disciples, and maybe the Greeks were there, listen, you want to see me, then see me on Friday because the path for your victory to know me comes through my death on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, it's for whoever comes. You say, well, I, I don't know if I can do that. Oh, no, you can't do it on your own. 
But you can open your hand to him. You can confess your sin. You can repent of your sin. You can trust this one who died in that place for you. Listen, he's the only hope. He's the only savior. There's nothing in the Bible that speaks to us about purgatory. You're either going to heaven or hell as you sit there. And I think here, this passage, the implication of it is there is a strategic turning point and it becomes a strategic teaching point. And the turning point is this, is that he's now moving to his death. The hour has come and he died for you. Jesus will later say, blessed is he who believes in me, though he's not seen me. But listen, you can see him with the eye of faith. But listen, I hold out the person of Christ. If anyone serves me, if anyone follows me, Whoever loves me or whoever in that sense, whoever hates this life and this world will keep it for eternal life. Listen, I just want to say to you as is with much love and truthfulness that I can that you'd be a fool to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't do it. He's offering himself.